0: Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and I am joined today by a special guest, uh, Dr. Rufus Burton, senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Martinsburg, West Virginia. and an instructor in church history here at RTS Washington. It's great to have you, Rufus.
1: Scott, it's great to be with you. It's great to be here at RTS. Timo, it's good to be with you as well. Um, Thank you for having me on. Thanks for being with us.
0: You've got an interesting background as both a scholar and a churchman. You're a career pastor And yet you're also a scholar in church history, particularly in Reformation church history. You you did your MDiv at Princeton. You went on to do your Ph.D. at King's College under the late Colin Gunton. And you've now, instead of going back into seminary and going back into some sort of educational environment, you went back into the church. And that's where you find yourself now, still serving as a senior pastor. So, so can you tell us a little bit of that story? How did you discern your call? How did, you, how did you get to this place in life? Sure. Okay. How long do we have?
1: I mean, that's a, a, a longish story. And I'm conscious of the fact that um, Presbyterian ministers communicate with each other in weird ways, talking about their, their call. And I'm aware that people are actually interested in what RTS has to say in podcasts while try not to up the boring quotient <laughs> um, for these podcasts. The um, So my call to ministry really came when I was 18. And through a, a series of events, was doing a, a personal Bible study through Matthew's Gospel in the midst of a homelessness crisis in Portland, Oregon. Hmm. And some of what I realized or began to feel in a new way was the tension between um, life as we know it in in a sinful fallen and broken world and life in the kingdom of God. And what would it be like if more people were captured by Christ's vision of humanity? And so I began very loosely to feel and um, explore this cult ministry, which I then... Um, I, shortly after that, we moved to Hong Kong for a bit, followed my father's work, came back. Um, that was a jarring experience just in terms of the, the um, cultural dislocation, uh, the culture shock. Um, sure. Moving to China, moving back from China.
0: What did your father do?
1: Um, He worked for Dana Corporation. They make car and truck parts, and they were setting up an aftermarket parts distribution network um, like Napa. Interesting. Uh, Because what happens is um, to drive a car on a public road in Japan, car or truck, it must meet current safety standards. You can't have a car that met old safety standards. So the government buys up all the trucks and then floods the Asian markets with all these five-year-old Japanese cars and trucks, so there's a massive market for um, uh, used car parts throughout Asia just to keep these, you know, Japanese cars and trucks on the road. So that's what he was doing, and they were trying to get into mainland China, but the mainland Chinese didn't want car parts, they wanted refrigerators, and so they had to find a way to work a deal with Mac and General Electric to get... You know enough refrigerators to make enough communists happy to start selling car parts in um, South China. <laughs> so I mean that's what he was doing, and um, so I went off to college, exploring that call to to ministry and thinking my career would either be radio or or ministry, and found a college that still offered a degree in rhetoric, and I thought, you know, that there's a thing that would be good to do, you know, either in radio or in In ministry, no rhetoric. Well, what I discovered what that means is you read Aristotle outside of the philosophy department, um, which is frankly a good place to read Aristotle outside Outside the philosophy philosophy department. Department. So uh, did that and um, really discerned the call to Presbyterian ministry. So. I'm a Presbyterian by birth, conviction, education, and experience. So, when I was a kid, my brother and I would ask religious questions. The answer we got was out of the shorter catechism, you know, just clearly. I mean, we didn't ask questions about what the meaning of life was because clearly it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We didn't have to know about right or wrong because we knew that sin was any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. You know, we knew that Jesus Christ is the only mediator of God's elect. And, you know, not that my parents sat us down to kind of work through all the questions of the catechism, but just whenever we asked, that was the answer that we that we got. So I come then from a long line of clerks, elders, deacons, um, long line of Presbyterians the last of whom to seek the, the teaching eldership did so in front of the Presbytery of Cincinnati in 1812. And he went to the Presbytery of Cincinnati convinced that he was called to be a missionary to the Indians in Indiana. right? So Indiana's not yet a state, it's clearly Indian territory, these people need Jesus. And the Presbytery put him on the docket. And so there he was, and they ran the examination. If you've been to college, well, no. I'm a farmer outside Cincinnati. Okay. Have you apprenticed yourself to a minister? No. Okay. Have you been to seminary? No. Okay. You're clearly not called of the Lord to be a missionary to the Indians. Well, he left the press trade meeting furious and decided he was going to go nonetheless and start an independent press trade mission to the Indians in Indiana. And so he made it just as far as the Indiana border which is not all that far from Cincinnati and was felled by typhus and languished um, ill. And who should come upon him but a group of Indians who have just been converted by a Methodist missionary (laughs) who decided then their Christian duty to return him to his farm in Cincinnati, which they did. He recovered and decided that indeed the Lord had not called him to be a missionary to the Indians.
0: (laughs) It's a good external blocking. Yeah,
1: point. yeah, no, precisely so. Yeah. And so, um, uh, which then kind of made us, you know, since then as a family, suspicious of, of the folks who'd want to pursue the, the teaching office in the church. And so, um, you know, at the time in my family, the way it worked was, if you wanted to be in the Presbyterian ministry, you had to go to the seminary of the Presbyterian church, which is Princeton. So there I went. And at Princeton, what I um, fell in love with was um, theology, exegesis, you know, I, I could do studies well, but I, I uh, unlike a lot of my classmates, did two church placements. I guess um, in our in the RTS context, that's an internship. I um, did two just because I loved it, wanted to do more. Um, wanted to be in the church wanted to see the way the Lord was moving in people's lives and um, you know renewing minds by transforming hearts and that was a remarkable thing to see and be a part of and what I realized was that the stuff I was learning in seminary was directly applicable to um, the stuff I was encountering in local churches with high school students with with grown adults Um, suddenly it all makes sense Um, you know when the Cappadocian fathers are writing about baptismal orthodoxy what does that mean that we're baptizing in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit Mm. you know what does it mean that the Holy Spirit is the Lord is God what
0: does that mean in the life of people and I love that your example is the Cappadocian Fathers. That's good. Oh, yeah, <laughs> clearly on, on my mind, yeah, and absolutely. Um,
1: and so, you know, this is the kind of stuff that comes that comes up, and that that you know, Christians still grapple with, wrestle with. And so, you know, again, growing up, um, uh, my father was ordained deacon at First Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and my grandfather was a trustee at second well at old first church in indianapolis then second church in indianapolis and you know my uncle was clerk at second church and um, was um you know all the ministers i had been exposed to had british degrees i mean it's just what you did You, you went to seminary and then you went to scotland Right, And that's how you knew the Presbyterian minister you wanted, because they had a <laughs> Scottish Ph.D. And I thought, well, you know, is, is that a thing I want to do? Because clearly I want to be one of these kinds of preachers who's at, you know, First Church Fort Wayne or Second Church Indianapolis. That, huh? You know, some numbered church in some big city, some place, this was the career goal. Um, keep in mind that when I was growing up in Indianapolis, there, there was a 16th Presbyterian church. So. Wow. You know, clearly, you know, I'm aiming for, I don't know.
0: You're looking for somewhere in the 7 to 10. Yeah, yeah, precisely, you know.
1: Maybe I'll make it as high as (laughs) 4th. And so this was, um, you know, this was motivation to look for, um, uh, for further work. And, you know, when I was there, Princeton was really set up to encourage you to study much more deeply. One of the things Tom Gillespie would talk about was the fact that You know, the Reformed tradition rides theological shotgun for the church. Hmm. And if you want folks who have thought deeply, if you want folks who know their theology, they want to know how it has cash value, and they want to know how to answer the question, so what, you're generally going to want to look for a Presbyterian. You're certainly going to want to look for a reform person. Hmm. And and I took that very seriously because I had... um, you know, in my college town, one of the local ministers was health and wealth, and his deal was he had a special savings account. And, you know, every year the weddings and funerals that he did, he put in the special savings account so that January of every year he added a new piece of jewelry so that his congregation would see him progress in health and wealth. And by the time I showed up, he was, he had... (laughs) He had eight rings. He hadn't yet put rings on his thumbs, and you know, set many chains around his neck. And coming from a family that's still kind of suspicious of, of wedding rings for kind of because that's that's men wearing jewelry, right? Right. Um, you know, just to a see a culture clash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say, mean, yeah. just to see some dude trying to ostentatiously display wealth. On the basis that this is a clear sign of, of the blessing of Jesus yeah. um, huh right I mean it's just it as a pressuring it's just not anything I'd ever been exposed to and I thought it was just really kind of strange and weird and you know I'm not convinced that this would have been Paul's advice to Timothy you know the way to impress your elders you know, clearly roundabout, or, hey, folks in Ephesus, look, I've got more rings. I mean, that's just, we sold extra tents this year or something. That was just not going to happen. And so um, I knew I wanted to know more. And so I went to Bruce McCormick and asked him, you know, I'm feeling this, uh, this sense of call to further study. I mean, and you know seminarians, you've got to use that kind of language to seem... You know, pass or something so you know feeling out this call he says well do you want to teach or do you want to be in the church and I said yes and he says no you've you've got to pick here Rufus because if you want to be in the church I'm going to send you someplace else than if you want to to teach I said well you know I I really do want to be in the church this is you know this is the call I feel and you know when I think of my own Giftedness, or what? What excites me? I think it's preaching. He says, "Well, then you want to go to King's College, London, and study with Colin Gun." I said, "Oh, because if you're, you know, if you want to teach, then you know you need to pursue a PhD here because that's how um, the guild works." So, my senior year, I um, applied for um, a parish residency at Second Church in Indianapolis, which was a brand new program from the Lilly Endowment to um, train folks after seminary. Um, Lilly had done a bunch of studies in the 90's um, looking at longevity in ministry because when I graduated from Princeton the average ministerial career was 3.6 years and the average ministerial tenure was three years. Hmm. So most denominations were not getting out of their mainline denominations were not getting out of their seminary graduates what they had put into them in seminary and so they were looking for a way just throwing spaghetti at the wall trying to find a way to ensure the longevity of ministers so second church when I was there was 3700 members um, enormous church in Indianapolis um, so the senior pastor nine associates exclusive of the six on the youth staff and then the twelve on the, the counseling staff and so they hired on four residents and you know each of us doing staggered two-year bids so um, a consistent emphasis in church administration and preaching and then six months in uh, crisis and long-term pastoral care Christian education evangelism and um, uh, domestic and and local mission. And so that was a really good experience. And in the midst of that, applied to study with Colin at, at King's. And the the British ex, um, way of going about these things is slightly more sideways than the American way. You just don't kind of apply. You try and write an interesting letter to the professor proposing an interesting topic that he would like to supervise. And, and then get leave to apply is is the language that's used. And so, you know, I would pour weeks into these emails uh, to Professor Gunton just to kind of get myself noticed. Or,
0: so you're corresponding with him? I, yeah,
1: vaguely, you know. Oh, I've read your book on Revelation at Light. And just <laughs> hoping he would email back. And of course, he's, he's giving these things all of 30 seconds. Thought, oh, thanks so much, you know. And, um, Unbeknownst to me, um, he knew um, Bruce McCormick fairly well, and Bruce McCormick had, had alerted him to the fact that I would be communicating with him. But over the course of the several months, uh, you know, created the correspondence and then got leave to apply. And at the time I was, so this is just I 2000 um, I had just discovered that James Usher, Archbishop of Armagh, was the textbook theologian for the Westminster Divines. Mm. And I thought the world needs to know that an Irish Anglican taught, you know, the guys who just found English speaking Presbyterianism everything they needed, you know, everything they know about theology. And this was going to be just this groundbreaking thesis. And so. You know, months before leaving for Britain, uh, met my wife. Weeks before leaving for Britain, married my wife. Wow. And, you know, we arrive in Britain kind of six weeks later and, you know, sight unseen. You know, mm-hmm. I'd been to to London. It sounds very exotic, but um, my father's mother is from Wiltshire, so I had aunts, uncles, and cousins round about the place. And, you know, so we always had a place to go Christmas and Easter and and, you know, so, kind of knew what was going on but, you know, kind of arrived to the, um, the faculty at, at King's. And so I go along the, the first day and I'm met by the department secretary who says it's six pounds fifty to pay. And I'd had real trouble getting a checking account and I said, but what? And she said, well, you're an American, you owe six pounds fifty. To the um, uh, social fund, you know, to the to the wine cellar of the faculty department, <laughs> and I said, "Wait, wait, wait! I can be compelled to pay for alcohol at a religious institution." Uh-huh. She says, "Well, yes, of course. Are you a teetotal, Will that be Will that be a problem?" I, no, no, no. I, yeah, I I I, I can't <laughs> write the check fast enough, but I have never before been compelled, you know, to pay for alcohol at a religious institution, like. Presbyterian, like it says on the name tag, right? Oh. So clearly, the, so that was fun. Uh, met, met with Professor Gunn who said, yeah, you know, we, we've got a conference in six weeks yeah. um, with Oxford and um, with Leeds. You know, why don't you present your thesis idea there? And so I go back and, you know, tell my new bride that this is great. I've got to write the conference paper. And so I spend the next several weeks writing this conference paper. So I'm in the British Library, and I think I'm working very hard, and it's all just coming together, and Archbishop Usher and it's all just going to go. And so the conference comes, and they clear out the, the main dining hall at King's, and they, they put me at a table with several other kind of first-year PhDs, and um, the thing about first-year PhDs is they're not very different than peacocks. And... Um, <laughs> you know having been to Princeton and having you know you know been two years in the parish I too can you know just do
0: you that full thing yeah oh yes and um, okay.
1: and crow with the best of. It. and so across the table it's a circular table so I say across, but across the table for me is um, John Webster then the, the Lady Margaret oh, wow. professor of Divinity at Oxford he says well, that's that's very interesting Rufus, that you'd want to do Archbishop Usher. I said, yes, thank you. He said, do you plan on going to Trinity College? No, I I don't plan on going to Dublin. Oh. Do you plan on going to Armagh? No, not not really. Well, do you plan on going to the archive and find something that's been unpublished or untranslated? No, no. Do you have any interesting stories about Archbishop Usher? Well, no, not at this point. He said, Rufus, That's a boring topic, and nobody cares. You need to pick again. (laughs) Been in Britain for six weeks, married six weeks more, and suddenly I have no idea what 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 I'm what I'm doing. Well, happily before I left Princeton, David Willis had taken me under the Charles Hodge Professor of Theology at the time had taken me under his wing and said and invited me along to a research seminar at the. Institute for Advanced Study on the holiness of God and it was an intriguing topic and so as I was casting around knowing that I wanted to be in a church knowing that I wanted to preach to real people with real lives here's a really interesting question because who is God what does he do in our lives how does he do it what does it mean to say that the Lord is holy his people are holy that he makes them holy, and then that's what I um, I wrote my thesis on the next three years at at King's, and it it cashes out because what makes the Lord different than the gods of the nations is that he's holy, his people are holy, they're different, mm. um, they're set apart. What does it mean that his people are still holy are like him so here you have this crowning attribute of you will if you if you will of the Lord and it is sh- it's communicable and so what does it mean that this communicable attribute is shared with his people and how do we see that lived out and how is that different than just some kind of uh, rigid morality and so those are you know questions that I've continued to kind of um, look at and wrestle with and you know the degree has been um, has been helpful you know I'm I'm helpful to my presbytery because I've learned how to think in particular ways I'm helpful to my congregation because I've learned how to think in particular ways and one of the things I realized I learned from from Colin. So at the time Colin was doing what he was calling dogmatics. And that was theology that was um, historically grounded and systematically aware. And so a theology that knew its context both historically and knew its context in terms of the web of connections that are necessary to think systematically about things. Just a, a fascinating way to do theology because it, it grounded it much more fully in the life of the church, grounded it much more fully in the text, grounded it much more fully in Christian experience. And being a good English Congregationalist, these are the kinds of things he's, right. he's looking right. for. And. Part of what he knew being, Professor Gunton knew, being a close study of John Owen was, or being a close student of John Owen's, was the importance of Trinitarianism for Christian theology. And this is one of the things I quickly discovered in the main line, or probably not fast enough, but realized in the main line, was that the first thing to go in mainline theology is Trinitarianism because you don't need the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. you know if we're all just going to have Jesus religion and worship the Father in the way he did you don't need the Holy Spirit to do that you just you, you copy him in whatever vague way you know Matthew or you know whoever is right, is, is getting it. Right. so Colin hammered into us Trinitarianism and that has borne tremendous fruit in my ministry. And it's one of the things I, I hope to bring to history class, particularly here, because it makes all the difference in studying the Enlightenment to know that the Father wills, the Son achieves, and the Spirit perfects. I mean, orthodoxy is much more easily held to if you aren't fighting with Rousseau on his own ground. Mm-hmm. You know, in the ancient church, um, lo and behold, Arianism crumbles when you've got a robust Trinitarianism. And it's important to realize that one of the initial responses to Arianism is to drop the spirit.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and, and that's a thing. And, and it's a mistake folks make today um, and continue to make. And this is where Richard Muller's right. Um, you know, it, it's it's an ignorance of the first of the patristics the first five centuries of Christian history that means that so much of the nonsense that's talked today is just a rehash of bad ideas from the first several centuries of Christianity. And this is part of why history is important because if you're going to know your own context right just even in the local church if you're going to know your own context in terms of where you're from, if you're going to know your own context in terms of church tradition, if you're going to know your own context in terms of the history of doctrine, your own context in terms of what is Orthodox Christianity, you have to have a robust sense of the history because it actually informs so much of what we do and so much of what's hidden. So it's possible to treat history like a bunch of hidden assumptions, but this is where C.S. Lewis is right, it's the unremembered history that enslaves. Mm. And so, you know, if if you don't want to preach with all the power you can muster, if you don't want to be, you know, the most help you can be to your your people, then, you know, you, you don't need history. But this is why it's a required core class. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to do church history. Why? Because that's, it's a bit like sinking a pier or a pillar a a foundation for a building Um, you know you've got to go down so far just to be sure that it goes and if you're going to make the if you're going to build on the rock you've got to get far enough to reach the rock and a big part of that is church history because lo and behold much of what we're talking about in church history is um, recorded reflection on the biblical text what gets saved from John Chrysostom are his sermons. Why? Because he's speaking in a historical, grammatical way to his people in such a way that they will be transformed by their encounter with the Word of God. We're not reading this stuff because you know some Greek father thought some stuff that that might be useful. You know it, he shows a beginning church history, right? the first Western missionaries into Middle East their first evangelistic tracts are reprints from Chrysostom Mm -hmm. you know why because he's evangelistic why because he's grounded in the text why because his people cherished what he said because it's grounded in the text and Mm -hmm. so you know what church history is is the story of the people of God wrestling with the Word of God as they live through you live here in the theater of God's glory.
0: So, well, let me ask yeah. let me ask you this: in light of the work on the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, and more importantly in ministry and, and theological study, or more, more particularly for this situation, how does that change then the way a student at a place like RTS? How, how does that change the way or influence the way that that person comes to RTS? studies God's Word, studies the application of it, studies the history of the church and the role of the Spirit in the past, to communities in the past, how does that, how should that influence the way that they're engaging with theological study?
1: That's a really good question because it it cashes out in really practical ways. So I'll get to why it's practical for me Kind of tell a story and then get to how it's practical for seminarians. Uh, part of my recent past is helping my church make the very difficult transition from the mainline into the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And part of the reason for that was realizing that um, the Holy Spirit was a, a non-participant in the life of you know, my main line, mm-hmm. Presbytery. Mostly because most, most preachers had no need of the Holy Spirit in their preaching. Mm-hmm. What we just needed to do was imitate Jesus. What we just needed to do was kind of suck it up enough to get on with it. And what that meant was that every time Paul mentions the Spirit, every time the scriptures point to the Spirit as the empowering cause, every time the Spirit is mentioned in terms of the one who joins us to Jesus and then you know brings us into communion with the Father, we had no idea what to do with that or, or what that meant, which meant then that the Trinity became an impractical doctrine. Baptism became... a a sacrament pointing to a name that we didn't fully understand. And at the Lord's Supper, we were just baldly commemorating an event that we didn't participate in in any meaningful way. And so we all knew that, you know, thanks to the 500th anniversary of Calvin's birth, that somehow... Calvin wanted us to feel something spiritual at the supper but we were clueless as to how that how that happened well um, what we're just gonna call that is what it is and that's just liberalism or modernism or whatever you want and this is the thing for seminarians to realize you go to college and you figure out how to do it and you get good at school and you can be good at school and then you feel this call to ministry and you can go to seminary and you can be good at school at seminary. Mm -hmm. Well being good at school at seminary is different than having a robust Christian life or Christian experience, different than having a robust experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So it's possible to kind of gut it out right just to do the work to do the exegesis to grind it out and not really grow in your faith or grow in your dependence on Christ or to think that what you're doing in seminary is preparing for the war there
0: yeah yeah
1: well the fact is the war's here and you're in it and you're fighting it now and seminary prepares you to do a work. Seminary is not the completion of a work. And if you're in seminary thinking that, you know, at the end of my three years I'm going to have read the last book I need to read, you know, you have been sadly misinformed about the way ministry works. All this to say that the best kind of seminarians are the best kinds of Christians are the best kinds of ministers and servants of the gospel. And these are people who flee themselves and flee to Jesus Christ. Mm. And the way that happens is by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, you've got to lean on the Holy Spirit to take you to Jesus. You've got to lean on the Holy Spirit to give you, you know, new and fresh images of His grace and His power and His presence And what you see in seminary is, you know, um, God-honoring, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled professors opening the Word of God, opening theology, opening church history to you, so that, you know, through their ministry, the Spirit has enough to use to enter into your life to draw you nearer to Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, just... so take an example just from my life recently I um, took an RTS course from a professor I wanted to take and it was it was fabulous and part of what he did was in one of his lectures he gives us 10 points on stuff you need to know about New Covenant prophecy in the Old Testament and we're furiously scratching notes and he, he just kind of pauses to say you will see this stuff everywhere. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I, lo and behold, in God's providence, I've been preaching through the minor prophets this summer, trying to use the minor prophets to point to Jesus. Well, lo and behold, course ended. I ended up in the post-exilic prophets. Well, what are the post-exilic prophets talking about but the new covenant? Yeah. Oh, wow, it is everywhere. And suddenly that rather dry list of 11 things you need to see that we're all furiously writing wondering if he can't go slower (laughs) opens up the scriptures, but opens up the scriptures in such a way that I'm able to preach meaningfully and preach it in such a way that the Holy Spirit's able to use that in the lives of my people so that when they go to, and I'll be mildly controversial here, Joel, We're able to see how Joel is pointing to the Lord Jesus, you know, and the Lord being in the midst of his people. And when the Lord's in the midst of his people, how do you know that's true? What's the sign Joel gives? The presence of the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. which is what you see then through Acts. So if you're thinking it's just my effort or just my energy or just you know me and Jesus are going to grind this out and I'll you know the Holy Spirit is some vague wheaties um, you know and, and not some person of the Triune God who has a ministry in my life, um, then you know you're going to be detached really from you know whatever power you'll actually have in in the Christian ministry. And so at seminary, what you find is the place to develop those habits so that you can really connect yourself to God's perfecting cause, so that you can tell people that, lo and behold, the Father wills, the Son achieves, and the Spirit perfects. And you can really look to the Holy Spirit to bring to perfection, um, to, to fullness, the blessings and benefits of Christ in your life, and as you see those things grow in your life by the power of the Spirit, as you see yourself grow more and more into the image of Christ, then what you will marvel at is the love of the Father for you, and that's a love that will help motivate you through the really hard and difficult times of, of ministry. Because, um, you know, my, my college chaplain put it to me like this as I was off to seminary. He said, Rufus, I've been in the world saving business for 45 years, and I can guarantee you one thing the world is worse now than when I started. <laughs> and so I now have been in the world saving business about 25 years, and the world's worse now than it was when I started. And what keeps me going is the knowledge that God loved, loves sinners enough to send his Son and his Spirit that we might be transformed, renewed, that we too
0: might be part of the kingdom of God. Mm. That's excellent. I love that. I love that Trinitarian vision for theological study that I use the word fullness, and, and I think about um, you know, the, the, the common jokes that you hear about seminary being a cemetery or something like that. Those are the driest years of my life. I remember when I went to seminary, a friend pulled me aside and he said, be careful, you know, guard your faith there. And I really do think what you're talking about is what makes all the difference. And I had professors, too, who felt that way. And... Were there times that I felt like I was drinking from a water hose, absolutely, like you said, furiously scribbling down a list of ten things, you know? <laughs> were there times where I was like, I have no idea how I'm going to get this amount, these amount of pages typed and these amount of exams finished? Yeah, absolutely. But it really was, you know, my years in seminary really were a time of just personal spiritual fullness for me and for my wife, because I was in a situation where my wife could take classes with me. It was great. Um... And I pray that and I hope that for our students, too. I think, I think that vision that you're laying out for it is exactly the Wait. difference that it, that it makes.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I want um, to say, I, I think on their best day, Presbyterian seminaries strive for that. And I, one of the things that so excites me about RTS is the way in which That vision for theological education, Mm -hmm. a robust vision for theological education that leads to robust ministries with robust congregations, robust presbyteries, robust missions and assemblies, is what we have been about since Archibald Alexander convinced the General Assembly to do this kind of thing. And, you know, the way RTS has tied itself to that vision just thrills my heart because here are a dedicated group of profoundly educated men and women who want to see good for Christ church and for his servants mm-hmm. and are doing really good and really hard work to ensure that the students here get what I think, and, and having been overseas, is frankly... A world class theological education, so that when you meet you know a Roman Catholic friend from Louvain, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Mm. you know when you meet that profound Anglican you know fresh from Oxford or Cambridge, you 've got a leg up when you meet <laughs> those folks from you know the the schools in Brazil, you know you have got something to talk about because at RTS um, you know you were given a mind for truth and a heart for God and you know I, I know that's in the tag but that's because that's what makes the difference and the servants of God around the world know the difference between a minister who's got a mind for truth and a heart for God and one who doesn't and it just shows and um yeah, so I'm I'm super excited to be teaching um, church history here, and um, teaching it. I hope in such a way that it, it grounds students for ministry, for theological education, and for greater depth of yeah. discipleship. Because you know, wanting to be a minister is just a it's a narrower way of being a disciple. You know, and and if you're gonna If you're going to check your discipleship to be a minister then um you know in three years your wells can be dry and you're going to find yourself you know in some mess wondering how it got all here and um you know i mean that's the lord calling you back to repentance (laughs) and so um
0: as we say now i say if you find yourself in that place where you're spiritually dry and you're going to the bible like it's a textbook just to get the answer for the exam stop taking classes, go take a year off, come back, if you, if you can, if it's the right thing, but get, get restored because it's not worth it.
1: Yeah, figure it out because it, um, You know, when I was in seminary, the common story was after three years, everybody finds a Jesuit because in, in, in my context, the thought was the only people who knew how to pray were Roman Catholics. Well you know if you know anything about the reformed tradition you know that's absolutely not the case and you can find you know a robust healthy and profound understanding of the spiritual life Mm -hmm. in the reformed tradition but if again the support cashes out if you cut yourself off from the holy spirit and you cut yourself off from him taking you to jesus you will find your discipleship very very dry and um And if you can use seminary to help you out, how to figure out how to do those things, um, you know, then it will do those things to get nearer Jesus in the midst of hard work, you will find Ministry a Fruitful Time because, you know, maybe worried about reading pages and writing papers, but somebody always dies Holy Week and, you know, wants their funeral that week and you still have to do the daily round of services and you still have to prepare the sermons for Easter and it still has to get done and you don't get to stand up Easter Sunday and say, can y'all come back in an hour? Maybe better tomorrow. The sermon will be better then. And, um, you know, so you've got to figure out how to, to find yourself in the midst of the living waters, in the midst of You know all the trials and tribulations and crosses and losses of ministry and you know your seminary professors are actually doing you a kindness when you know they're teaching you to reach for you know what you can actually do and you know most congregations will give me a gimme you know you you didn't (laughs) consult as many commentaries as the professor would like it's okay we all understand you know ministries are hard-pressed but you know if it's just you and your thoughts and you know maybe the study bible your granny left on her bedside when she died um, you know you can do better for Jesus yeah. and the spirit will enable you yeah. to.
0: And, and deadlines are a kind of common grace in that way aren't they i mean dead yeah. deadlines get you just just get it done oh yeah you most you don't want to hang it my, hanging over your head for yeah, no, 4 years yeah. you know just uh, get it done
1: um, <laughs> Generally I have found my sermons are worse with two weeks work than one but
0: you know there we are so yeah. all right so Dr. Burton, you're going to be teaching church history one this fall yeah fall 2021 and church history two next spring
1: indeed and there's a, an intensive church history one in January as well yep. so it, um,
0: so keep an eye on that and uh, if you're interested and you want to delve into this more deeply um, sign up and come take dr. Burton's church history classes. Thanks for being with us, Rufus. It's been great to talk to you.
1: Thank you very much. I've appreciated the opportunity, Scott. All
0: right, And to everyone else, take care. Okay, so then welcome. I'll see if I can do it after all these months. I got to do it right. Okay. Welcome to the faculty bot. Yep, there we go.